Now, really concerning this morning. Um, guys, um, it's been over a month, almost a month since we've been together over um, this or in this series that I have entitled, Thus Saith the Lord. Um, so let me just remind you or refresh you as to what this is all about, this whole series. What's it all about? <clears throat> Folks, for many of you, the word postmodernism is just a word. I, and you don't have the slightest idea what the word postmodern means. But let me assure you that you have been affected. Um, postmodernism's reach has gotten to you. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about postmodernism. Postmodernism says, in essence, this is one of its key characteristics, is that, that the only reality that exists is an inward one, self. That is, all truth is determined by self. All right and wrong, all morality is determined by self. All religion is self-generated. And if you'd like to see that in full bloom, then just tune in to an Oprah episode when she is discussing religion. You'll see it there in spades. The postmodern does not think that there's anybody outside himself to whom he's accountable. There's no one outside of him before whom he is summoned. Now, historic Christianity has always, always opposed that. And, and saying that God is not to be discovered inside of you. He's the outside God. He's revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the scriptures. He's a God who speaks. He's a God, in fact, who loves to talk. And he's the God that we're supposed to listen to and respond to and obey. And so this present series that we're in is about us reorienting our focus off of the inward and onto the outward God and taking our eyes off of anything inward and listening to the God who loves to talk and expects us to listen and respond and obey. So, thus saith the Lord. On numerous subjects, all kinds of subjects, over the lives of two men, Elijah and Elisha. That's what this is about. <clears throat> Trying to reorient our, our focus to fix our attention on the God who is outside of us and who has spoken and expects us to respond in obedience. Having said that, turn with me, if you will, to First Kings chapter 19. And let me read to you the first 18 verses of um, 1 Kings 19. Here we go. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, 
It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went into the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The grass withers and the flower flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Who would have ever imagined this sequel to chapter 18? You remember chapter 18? It was over, it was almost a month ago when we looked at it, but remember chapter, in chapter 18, Elijah's on the top of Mount Carmel and he's, He's challenging the prophets of Baal and ultimately defeating them and then executing 450 prophets of Baal. That was chapter 18. And now in chapter 19, he's running like a scared puppy because of the threats of one woman, Jezebel. And yet I wager that the thing that stood out about this text most to this audience and the audience to follow is the, the whole idea that this hero, this, this man of faith, this uh, leader of God's people, has prayed to die. What's up with that? You know, guys, this little story that I just read you, it's just, it's full of good stuff. Uh, for instance, verse 18 of what I just read you, the last verse I read you, is picked up by the Apostle Paul and brought into Romans 11, where Paul is addressing the whole issue of... Um, The remnant, the remnant of grace. You see, Paul lived in a day, like Elijah's, like ours, where the majority of people had rejected faith. 
And so Paul is developing the idea that there is a remnant, a remnant of sheer grace. It's not a remnant that that's preserved because of its faithfulness and they won God's favor. No, 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 no. It's preserved because of God's sheer grace. But here's my point. We can't spend our time looking at that rich theological concept because we are so shocked that one of God's leaders would pray to die. Did you hear that? One of the stalwarts, one of the mighty men of faith, he's so scared, he's so depressed, that he wants to die. You know, and in some ways, that story is, I mean, that this event is, um, it's kind of encouraging for the rest of us ordinary folk, you know, because, um, most of us have a broom tree event in our lives or in our past, just like Elijah. What I mean by a broom tree event is that there's been a time that there's just been an, a real spiritual breakdown. Maybe it led to depression, maybe it didn't. Maybe it was a moral failure, maybe it wasn't. But we've had a broom tree experience in our past. And so watching this guy handle his Kind of encourages us because we didn't do, you know, quite that bad. <laughs> I mean, we didn't pray to die. Maybe some of us did. You watch this this um, this hero of the faith, and he runs like a scared puppy. He he uh, he loses all sense of spiritual bearing. He, he has no possession of faith in him at this moment. He he whines and complains and takes a nice warm bath in his own self. Pity and 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 then he says, "I want to die." Gosh, I mean, he's not acting a whole lot like somebody who loves God, now is he? How does that happen? How do how do you get to that place? And then, what does God do to restore this once intrepid prophet who's now a broken man? Guys, those are my two points. How does this happen? How do you get to a place like this? And, secondly, what does God do to restore folks who have, who have gotten to a place like this? What does he do? So, let's take a look. First of all, uh, I want you to see, I mean, or try to explain, how does this happen? The, the first thing that I, I want you to note or to think about is that this is a portrait. This little event is a portrait of man at his best. <laughs> Guys, Elijah is not the only one who had a spiritual breakdown. Um, Abraham throws his wife under the bus, lying about her being his wife so that he can escape some kind of danger for a foreign king. Hey, yeah, take my wife. As long as I'm safe. David and that episode with Bathsheba, ooh, that was an ugly one. Or um, Peter. Peter, uh, you know, the big shot who denied Christ in that very ugly um, event. And then even John the Baptist. John the Baptist who 
who had had all this exposure to uh, things that that God had done and and baptized Jesus and all this business. And then he sits in a prison and thinks, <laughs> did I get it wrong? Folks, if, if you ever thought that man can save himself, you might want to think that through again. Because here are four of the best. And they've all got disasters in their past. You know, guys, um, we all have potential for spiritual greatness and spiritual disaster. We are this, this odd mixture of, of beauty and brokenness. This, this strange conglomeration of new man and old man. You know what, you know what Francis Schaeffer called us? You know that name, Francis Schaeffer? Here's what he said we were. I love this. He said, we are a glorious ruin. That's what we are. You know what Augustine said? St. Augustine? He said, the church is a whore. But she's also my mother. Brendan Manning said, he said, um, Aristotle tells me that I am a rational animal. But I say... I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. <laughs> Martin Luther, Martin Luther said, Simul Eustus et Peccator. At the same time, just, righteous, and sinful. We are so erratic with such potential for to be erratic. This is a portrait, ladies and gentlemen, of man at his best. If you want to understand why, how these spiritual breakdowns happen, then just remember you're a glorious ruin. That's what we are. I'll tell you something else it ought to do. A couple of things. It ought to make us a whole lot less judgmental of each other. You know, if, if Peter... After what he did in denying Christ, if Peter had found his way to some of our churches, into some of our church courts, why, we'd have run him out of here on a rail. But but not if you know that you're a glorious ruin. Ladies and gentlemen, we are complex people. And we're not smart enough to figure out our own lives, much less somebody else's. I'll tell you one thing that it ought to do. It ought to make us a whole lot less judgmental and quick to judge somebody else. Knowing that I'm a glorious ruin. My, my um, I told this story years ago. I, <laughs> I don't even remember whether it's true. I think it is, but it's been so long ago, you know. Um, but I think it was my daughter Gracie that told me this story about one of her friends. My my daughter's friend was in a grocery store and she was uh, had her you know grocery cart full of groceries ready to check out and she was behind a man who was behind another woman who was checking out. The, the checker was checking out this woman up here and, and the woman up in the front who was being checked out had a little toddler in her, in her grocery cart, you know, in the front of the grocery cart and those little things. And, and the little toddler was reaching on, up and down the side. She was reaching at everything and grabbing for things and pulling it into the cart. And, you know, she'd grab the Tic Tacs and then she'd get the, the certs and then the, the National Enquirer and then the TV guide. And, and the little mother just patiently was putting the things back and, you know, as the kid pulled. And the man standing behind her was really getting, you know, irritable over all this. And um, he finally had enough of it. And he, he leaned up to the woman and he said, Lady, 
You could get all that stopped with one good spanking. And the lady turned to the man and said, Sir, my daughter and I just left the doctor's office where they're treating a muscular disease in my daughter. To watch her grab and pick up and stretch and and uh, pull, that's an absolute beauty to me. Oops. <laughs> you see the point, ladies and gentlemen. The point is simply, we are complex people, not even able to understand ourselves, much less be quick to judge somebody else. Back off, would you? The other thing that this might do, that is, understanding that you're a glorious ruin, it it might change the way you pray. You know, the best of men are still men, and the only ones that, I mean, we, we only stand as long as God supports us by his grace. He removes that. We're in trouble. So, you might want to pray about that. You might want to pray remembering that you're a glorious ruin. That's what we are. Now, what I'm saying is that's how, that's how episodes like this happen. Because that's true to who we are. And the quicker we understand that, the more this won't throw us a... You know, we go to some places and some church environments where we have had a breakdown and, and we feel very guilty because we're being told that Christian living is from one victory to the next victory. That's nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. It's nonsense. Proof. I'm a glorious ruin. Now, that's part of the explanation. Here's the second thing I'd have you to consider. It has to do with scary circumstances. <laughs> you know, Jezebel's pretty scary. She'd scare me. Um, and it's Elijah just killed 450 prophets of Baal. Did you expect Baal to take that line down? And his agent on earth, Jezebel, says, I'm going to kill you, buddy. And he's, he's frightened, and he, and he runs. I mean, what her actions were rather, rather predictable. But, but guys, they're really not actions. They're reactions. Because the one who was the real aggressor here is Elijah. And so is the church of Jesus Christ. That is, if she's doing her job. The church evokes hostility, folks. That is, if we're doing our job. The church, when she's doing her job, is like her savior. She evokes hostility. My point is this, guys. Part of the explanation as to why things like this happen is to understand something about the nature of the spiritual battle we're in. Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against this. Guys, and in every battle, people get wounded. You know, guys... Um, I consider my life a privileged life. I love the ministry. I love doing what I get to do. But one of the things that I love the most about it is not preaching. Preaching's hard. <laughs> but the thing that one of the things that I love the most is that I get invited into your life at a deeper, a deeper level than surface stuff. You've heard me say that before. I don't want to be. I don't want to talk about news, weather, and sports. I want to know what's going on, and so I get invited in. And I have watched during this recession. I have watched careers go up in smoke. 
I have watched companies ruined, sent into bankruptcy. I, I have watched professions just, in essence, disappear. There are circumstances, ladies and gentlemen, that are scary. And the circumstances tend to knock us off balance and we lose our, our spiritual poise. That's part of the explanation, ladies and gentlemen, as to why things like this happen. We're not supermen. We're glorious ruins. And there's one other thing that I, I would have you see. It's in the text, and I, I think it's a hint of explanation as to what happened. It's in verses 9 and 10, and if I can read it to you, it says, uh, There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, Here it is. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I even I only am left, and they're trying to kill me. The, um, the thing that Elijah was known for was his courage. And... Um, he appears to be awfully impressed with his courage. He's gotten a little taken away or carried away with his, the expansiveness of his ministry. Everybody's gone, but me. I alone am faithful. That's a little high-minded, ladies and gentlemen, but did you know how God responded? Did you notice how God responded to that when he said it over in verses 16 and 17? Or 15, 16. He said, nothing. <laughs> he just ignored it and said, I got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, buddy. Guys, the point is this. Um, we are most likely to have a breakdown in the area where we feel the most strength. It can't be said enough. It can't be preached enough. But the Bible promises grace only, only, only to the humble. Only. The rest of us are resisted, says the scriptures. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, um, you, uh, you're proud about the many years of your marital fidelity, are you, gentlemen? <laughs> Watch out. You, um, you're very taken with your, with your, uh, career success, are you folks? Be careful. The Apostle Paul has a word for you. The word is, um, do not be proud, but stand in awe. See, what I'm saying is that part of the reason that Elijah ends up like this is because he's, um, he's way too taken. With his spiritual accomplishments. He's um, way too um, proud of all that he has done and that he is. Be careful. Now, guys, before I go to my second point, <clears throat> um, let, me, let me say two quick things. Elijah prays to die. But I want you to notice that he, he leaves that prerogative in God's hands. That is, 
he doesn't consider suicide. And if you are, stop it. Secondly, I want you to notice that in the midst of his depression, he is still turning his voice, his face towards God. In the midst of it all, he still turns to God. Now, let's come to the second point. Let's do that real quick and we'll be done. What does God do to get this once intrepid prophet out of his state of depression and um, back in the game? First of all, I want you to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't uh, offer any lectures. That is, God doesn't. There's no harsh speeches, no scolding, no, no condemnation, no disgust. God does not love him less there under the broom tree or in the cave than he does when he was on the top of Mount Carmel uh, defeating the prophets of Baal. So that's something that he doesn't do. Now, from here on, guys, there's a very there's a real fascination to me about this text. Because the first thing that he offers is sleep and food. The first thing that God does is something very practical. He says, um, I mean, he sleeps. And, you know, we've, we've grown to, uh, uh, I don't know, take sleep for granted. You do know, don't you, that the Bible says that sleep is a gift? I tell you what, go a few nights without it. And see how much you love it. And how much you appreciate it. And how much some of us wake up every morning and say, God, thank you for letting me sleep. He feeds him. He, um, he, he gets some sleep. Some, um, some real practical, outside, external kind of stuff. Um, but the other thing that I want you to see here, guys, is... It's, it's, I'm not sure I've got it right, but let, let me do my best. The angel shows up and touches him. And by the way, did you notice that that touch is mentioned twice in verse 5 and verse 7? The angel touches him. Now, I, I'm not sure, but I don't think I've been touched by many angels lately. But maybe I have. I was talking to a brother this week who um, has gone through a real bad time. He was one of those that the recession crunched. And um, he was telling me of all the kindnesses that you as a congregation have shown to him. Very practical, tangible kindnesses that you've shown to him. And I wondered, did the angels touch him through you? I can say at least this much to you, ladies and gentlemen. When you are at your lowest, that is when he is the closest. Notice, this angel doesn't touch him when he's on the top of Mount Carmel. He touches him when he is, you know, wanting to die. The other thing that God does to restore him, or there's two other things. The other thing he does is that he he teaches him a lesson, or he gives to him a lesson. He you know he goes to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and um, he says to him, "What are you doing here?" We're going to come back to that in just a second. But um, then he takes him outside and uh, he puts on this pyrotechnic display, 
where the earthquake comes, the wind is first, then the earthquake and the fire. The, the rocks are being blown to pieces and tearing mountains down. That's, that's all in the text. And the lesson is this, ladies and gentlemen. There is a weakness in things that we normally think of as strong. And then there's this, this whisper. This whisper from God. And in that, Elijah is moved. Because it's not in the earthquake, it's not in the fire, it's not in the wind. It's in God's voice. It's in God's whisper. It's in God's word. Where he is restored, ladies and gentlemen. What what I'm saying is that one of the things that God does to restore him is to remind him of certain things that are true. Elijah's not your problem. Excuse me. Jezebel is not your problem. You're impressed with this and that and the, and the, and the pyrotechnic display. And that's not the issue. God says in another place, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit. Jezebel is not your problem. Where you need to focus on what I've said and what I accomplish by the, um, by the work of my spirit. Now, guys, before I leave this, um, there is in this, I think, a hint of rebuke. He says to Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing in the cave, Elijah? I mean, there's, there's stuff to be done out here, buddy. And what are you doing in the cave? That's a question that I'd like to ask many of you. What are you doing in the cave? What is it that's paralyzed you? Is it is it guilt over previous sin? Then, my friend, you don't understand the gospel. If guilt over previous sin has paralyzed you. But you know, guys, um, I don't think that's what paralyzes most of us. You know what I think it is? I think we have too much money. I think we can't get out of the cave because we're so distracted by all the things that we have to maintain. We have so many options that we're no real good to the kingdom because we're we're into this and into that and into the other and oiling this and taking care of that and visiting here and going there. Guys, um, what are you doing in that cave? The other thing that God does to restore Elijah is that he gives him three assignments. He says, it's time to get back to work. Um, I want you to go anoint this guy, this guy, and this guy. So God puts him back in the game. He doesn't disagree with Elijah's assessment that this is hard work. (laughs) He ignores it, actually. But um, Elijah now is has been reminded that it's not 
Jezebel that's the problem, as long as God is continuing to speak. Guys, let me close with three quick things that I think the God who speaks wants you to know from this little story. Number one, I may be speaking this morning to somebody who is just... You find yourself under a broom tree wanting to die. Um, You're under, you're in a stage of some kind of depression, licking your own wounds and, um, and overcome with the fact that you have failed God in such a horrible way. Well, Here's the start for us, ladies and gentlemen. Tell him. Own what you've done. Call it what he calls it. Don't call it sowing wild oats. Call it what it is. Guys, you might not be able to undo it. But you can call it what it is. And tell him how much you hate what it is that you've done. Secondly, I'm afraid that you and I have gotten the impression that the way that the world is going to be one to Christ is by some great big old earthquake or something. You know, maybe we can have some kind of uh, giant crusade and bring in lots of celebrities and, and, and that'll reach them. Here's another, or I hear people say, oh, if America, if America crashes, what's going to happen to the mission field? Or, um, I watched the Church of Jesus Christ make an absolute fool of herself when some celebrity makes a profession of faith and we all beat a path to the door. Guys, God doesn't operate like that. It's not earthquakes that he needs or wind or fire or any of it. The way that he, on one occasion, he spoke and an entire galaxy came into being. And maybe more than two or three galaxies for all I know. Folks, it's, it's through the operation of his spirit through his word that he, that he, that he moves, that he works. He doesn't operate like we think he should or the way that we would. He certainly doesn't need all of our pyrotechnics. What he needs is is a group of faithful people to his word. Third and done. Folks, we are not pagans because we've made a spiritual mistake. Because we've had a spiritual blowout. Nor are we Christians because we perform well, because we tithe, because we enjoy a worship service. We're Christians because of the still small voice of God. Can I read you about it? Just one verse out of Titus 3. He says, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. (laughs) Not that. But he saved us 
according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What he's done, in essence, is establish life where there wasn't any. And he's done that, not by an earthquake. He's done that by the operations of his spirit. Now, my brother and sister in Christ, I'm, I'm sorry about your blowout. I had a couple myself. But I'm not a Christian because I performed well. And I'm not booted out of the kingdom because I performed poorly. I'm a Christian because Jesus performed well. And then, through the still, small voice of God's Spirit, I was made to see my sin and my need for a Savior. I'm sorry. But let's get back in the game. After you've healed up a little bit, let's get out of the cave and let's get back in the game. We've got work to do. There's a there's an old U2 song. Um, the title of the song is So Cruel. And Bono in that song, there's a line in that song, he sings, Head in heaven, fingers in the mire. Yeah. Let's get our heads in heaven. And then let's go get our hands dirty. Our Father, I pray that you will speak to your people, not because of me, but in spite of me. I pray that you will um, use your word to bring about a a great sense of calling, a great sense of um, accountability before you. And for those, Father, that you've led here today who have not yet seen that the only way that any of us is saved is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Show them that, Father. I can't do that. Show them that through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name.